Please turn in your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. Some of the passages there listed in, on your insert, but couldn't fit all the verses. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 40. Joseph was 17 years old when he was brought to Egypt as a slave. He spent uh, seven to ten years in Potiphar's service before he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. He was 28 when he interpreted the dreams of the servants of Pharaoh. Now we come to chapter 41, and it's been two more years since then, so he's 30 years old, 13 years since the day he was stripped of his coat of many colors. I'll read this passage and make a few explanatory comments as we go. As we see again on display God's many attributes, a beautiful, colorful passage. Once again, one of the longest in Genesis, so we'll take the first 40 verses this week. This is God's holy word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Now, a few comments. The Nile in Egyptian lore and in Egyptian reality was a sign of prosperity. The Egyptian religious system believed in false gods, gods for everything. And the Nile represented a a god himself. Pharaoh was an under god on the way to becoming an immortal god. This is the teaching of Egypt. But the Nile River in reality meant everything to Egypt. It's what differentiated Egypt from the other nations in the ancient Near East. It's what helped them maintain their kingdom. It would flood every year for 30 to 60 days stay flooded over the banks, and the reed grass of the marshlands would provide uh, greenery that the cattle and the livestock would eat. The cattle would go into the Nile in the nighttime to escape the flies and everything else, and then at night would come up out eating the reed grass. Um, The cattle were signs of God's prosperity, the God's prosperity, prospering them. Pharaoh would take credit for if the gods were happy. How would they be happy? If they had enough grain. And they were the breadbasket of the ancient Near East. All of this is important background when we consider what Pharaoh's seeing so vividly now in his dream with the Nile and with the cattle. And now the, dream, the second dream, which also plays into this prosperity of Egypt. Back to verse 4. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, In all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. There was a professional class of soothsayers who lived in Egypt around the king. These were magicians and so-called wise men who were 
fleet of tongue and able to tell Pharaoh just what he wanted to hear. There was lots of anxiety, lots of nervousness that hovered around whoever the Pharaoh was. So there would be people who would constantly pump him up. They would be like his hype men. Oh, you're doing a great job, Pharaoh. Oh, this will be great. Surely you're making a great and wise choice. And they would respond to whatever his mood was, whatever he said, with something to pump him up. And he loved to have them around him. But in this case, he has this very specific dream, and it troubles him. It would be grotesque to see these fat cows eat these other cows and not look any different after. So he needs an explanation, but the magicians and the wise men, all of them, could have been dozens, who knows how many, they were probably afraid to say for sure because they could tell this was different and Pharaoh was acting different. His response was unlike before. None of them could give him peace with their answers. So we come back to the passage, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. In these times, the Egyptians were clean-shaven compared to the others who lived in the ancient Near East and the Middle East. Um, Not just their face, but their heads as well. Um, The pictures you'll see from this era famously show people with uh, no hair on their faces and sometimes some headgear, headwear, and then makeup on their faces as well. This is unique to Egyptian royalty. And for him to come up in the presence of, of the Pharaoh, they clean him up in such a way. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. 
It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of, is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house." And all the people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we are certainly moved and impressed by the, the high testimony about your word from the ages that have gone before us. Then when we read it for ourselves like we just did, especially in this company of believers, we can testify ourselves about the clear divine authorship of this sacred book, the efficacy of the doctrine contained in your word, the, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, and the sheer scope of the whole of it all puts us in awe. Now, O oh Lord, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please help us to understand your word and to make application of its truth starting right away. I pray this. Through Christ. Amen. The closest thing that ever happened to me is I was working in the back of a warehouse in the morning, and by the end of the day, I got to work on the loading dock. That's the biggest change around that I ever experienced in my life. But the prison in the morning after those years, in a few hours later, he's now co equal with the king of Egypt. Few of you have had a day like that, I'm sure. And here is Joseph, by God's providential plan, finally moving from this place of continuing humiliation to a place of unimaginable exaltation. The turnaround is impressive. It's incredible. It's an amazing thing that happens. And as we have been studying Joseph in particular, we say it's true of all of Genesis, but Joseph in particular, looming largest of the themes has to be God's providence, how he moves the pieces around to an appointed end that is for his glory. We know the big picture that's on display in Genesis and in the Old Testament is God fulfilling his promise to send a seed from the woman to be the second Adam, to crush the head of the serpent. That's the, that's the story of God's redemption unfolding in real time. 
But in the specific details of Joseph's life, we see this unfold. We see how involved God is. Several recurring themes. Providence is one. There's another recurring theme we shouldn't miss. The superiority of Yahweh, the true and living God, over the false gods of the nations. And in this case, Egypt. There's also the theme of faith being exercised by God's people. We've seen it in the chapters with the patriarchs previously. And now the stalwart faith of Joseph, a man who finds himself alone, far from his homeland, surrounded by no other people who acknowledge Yahweh, yet he's strong in his faith. There's also the theme of God's covenant faithfulness. He promises to make his people a blessing to the nations. We haven't really seen that at all so far through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in no major way, but now we're seeing it in Joseph where the nations will benefit because of God's favor towards Joseph. There's also the themes of humiliation and exaltation on display that's not just here in the Bible, it's elsewhere, is God gives grace to the humble. He puts down the proud. We see that happen here. In the span of just a few hours, Joseph goes from being a prisoner, woken, awoken from a sleep, and now he is made the chief operating officer of the most powerful nation on earth. Candlish says, the end of humiliation now and the beginning of exaltation. Once again, the true and living God manifests himself through the actions of Joseph. He manifests several of his attributes, full display for us and for all who read. Several of his characteristics are on display now in chapter 41. You see first and foremost his sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty on full display. The dream itself given to Pharaoh, the king of the known world, one of the most powerful people on earth. And God sovereignly overcomes that man with this vision and directs this man as he wills. So much so after having these dreams in verse 8, we read, so in the morning his spirit, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. The sovereign God was affecting one who was sovereign on earth, troubling him, making him anxious. He sends for advisors to come relieve his anxiety, telling them his dreams, but none of them could interpret. God can work through any means that he chooses, even using a pagan Pharaoh like this. Remember, God is the sovereign one, not Pharaoh. People go to Pharaoh as though he's the one who determines things, but it's God who determines it all. This is why in the Proverbs Solomon wrote, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's what he's doing with Pharaoh in these moments. He can superintend, override, commandeer, mold the wills of people to do his bidding. This makes God the sovereign one. Even things like famines are under the control of God. Mankind can seek answers for the things they don't understand by going to other people. But if God does not grant people knowledge or wisdom or insight, we will remain darkened, ignorant, and lost. We are dependent on the sovereign God to reveal himself. And this is what he's been doing in the life of the patriarchs. And now it's bubbling through, and even all of Egypt will be able to see this sovereign God. Pharaoh sought for an answer, could not get one. The wisdom of mankind, the tricks of the magicians, could not come through. Remember what happened when the cupbearer asked Joseph for an interpretation? 
Joseph was very careful to say to him back in chapter 40, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. I'm not a magician. I'm not one of Pharaoh's wise men. If there's an interpretation, it must be from God. We must depend on the sovereign God. This is pointing to his sovereignty, not man's capabilities. Candlish notes what's about to happen when Pharaoh asks for an interpretation. Because now it's Pharaoh asking, not just the cupbearer. Candlish says, This youth of 30 years, setting aside all the gray-haired sages round the throne, wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and by means of it, sways the rod of the emperor. Empire. The sovereign God can use any means, and even this 30-year-old Hebrew. When Pharaoh has dreams himself and asks for Joseph's counsel, in this moment of centrality, when all eyes are on Joseph, will he give the interpretation? And what does Joseph say? Joseph answered Pharaoh, verse 16, it is not in me. Elohim God God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The sovereign God will give the answer. And favorable here doesn't mean an answer that he'll necessarily like, but it'll give him the true answer that will bring him a contentment that this is really what the dream means. A peace, you might say. I will give you that because God will grant it. It's from God. God will give it to you. Yes, I will be the mouthpiece, but make no mistake, it's the God of Israel who is the God who will give you this answer. This is a display of God's absolute sovereignty in the court of Pharaoh when a a mere prisoner makes this statement to this befuddled king. You can't come up with the wisdom. Only the sovereign God can give you the answer you need. What a call to anyone who's in leadership, but especially national rulers, that they ought to seek what the true and living God says in what he reveals. He doesn't always reveal the details, but when he reveals something of his character and how we ought to respond to that character, the wise leader will recognize this. We see it in Pharaoh's spirit being subdued by the sovereign God. Furthermore, notice what Joseph says in verse 32 about the significance of the dream, meaning the same thing uh, in two different ways. Verse 32, he says the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by the sovereign God, by God. And God will shortly bring it about. So the absolute sovereignty of God is on full display for everybody to see, but especially Pharaoh, who will be making the local decisions. This reminds me of a time when Isaiah the prophet, the mouthpiece of God in that era, speaks to Cyrus, who was the king of Babylon at that time. And he was speaking to him something similar that God was going to use him, even though he was this pagan God who thought himself sovereign, God gives him a reminder. God speaking to Cyrus through Isaiah. Isaiah 45. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, he tells Cyrus, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The same God of Israel spoke through Joseph to Pharaoh 
and to the ages that this thing that happened is from the hand of the sovereign God. It's been said well that kings do not make history. They only serve history. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So the sovereignty of God, once again, on full display for reminder to us all and to the nations that God, the true and living God, is the sovereign one. Next, you can see again in how this all unfolds that providence, that wonderful providence of God, that he's working all things towards an appointed end that he has. Look at verse 1. After two whole years, uh, Moses, the writer, wants to emphasize two whole years. This, This is a long time. But in God's providence, it's just the right amount of time. After two whole years, so we can feel it, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing in the Nile. Up, uh, a dream again. Remember, Joseph had two dreams himself, then he interpreted two dreams, and now there are two more dreams. Whenever the dreams come up, Joseph knows uh, God's doing something really special. It's not that he's not always doing something, but in this occasion, he knows what this has meant in the past. So the providence of God shows itself as purpose of God, the plan of God starting to unfold. Verse 9, another work of God's providence. After Pharaoh gives this dream that he can't interpret, the cupbearer who's in close proximity to Pharaoh sees the magicians coming and going and the wise men unable, and then by God's providence, it comes to his remembrance. How many times have you had something that comes to your remembrance? You don't know, why did it come to my remembrance now? Now, I can't interpret for you because the Word doesn't say it, but you know that God does this in our lives. Well, He'll prompt us to remember something we had forgotten. Why did we forget that? But in His timing, it works out. Verse 9, Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. What a way to start. I remember that time you got super mad at me about killed me. I remember this, this episode, and he starts to say it out loud. Now, this is a bit risky because if you think about it, Pharaoh might say after he said all this, why didn't he say this a long time ago about this Joseph? But in God's providence, now was the time. Even though two whole years had gone by, in Joseph's mind, this is way too long. Why did you just remember finally, Cupbearer? I'm glad you did. But it's because of God's providence and his timing, which is perfect. He starts, goes on to tell, verse 11, we had this dream, the baker and I, both had interpretations, and this young Hebrew guy, he was there. He was from the captain of the guard's house, and we told him, and he told us back what it was, and it happened exactly as he said, verse 13. Without delay here, again, a work of God's providence. I mean, why would Pharaoh just not say, give me a break? You're going to appeal to a prisoner now? of All my magicians and all my wise men? But God prompts Pharaoh. Pharaoh sends and calls for Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Kent Hughes says he had been yanked from the pit of powerlessness and placed before the personification of power in Egypt. Joseph had been living in filth, but now stood amidst the scented finery of the court of the Nile. What a change. What a turnabout. God's providence. But we also get a little bit of a glimpse of his immediate purposes. We know his big purpose, what he's working in Genesis, what he's working through the Old Testament, what he fulfills in the New. We know that. But there's some immediate particulars that he's now going to reveal. He has a purpose behind what's about to unfold. And what's about to unfold will be mean calamity for a lot of people. And that's the nature of life in this world. But he's going to show mercy in bringing a picture of this to bear. 
It says in verse 15, as his purpose has come to view, purposes for Joseph in this stage of his life. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard you can tell me a dream. You could tell me the interpretation. God will give Pharaoh what he desires. God has reasons and purposes for what he's about to explain. And then he lays out the two dreams that are so vivid. We understand them because we've heard them before, but if you heard them the first time, you wouldn't know either. But Joseph, with clarity that comes from God, is able to say exactly what it means, what God's going to do through this whole episode of plenty years and famine years. If they normally had plenty years without knowledge of what was coming, they would just spend it most likely. They had no idea what God had planned. What would they do? But God in his graciousness tells them his purposes in these seven plenty years are to build them up for the years of famine to come. But there's something even greater that God's doing through this all that may not make immediate sense. You remember the state of Jacob and family at this point? After they sold out Joseph and lied to their father and let their father live in this hellish existence thinking his favorite son had been slaughtered, they were spread out. Remember the story of Judah and how things were going with Judah. They were a mess. The people of God, the covenant people, were a spread out, disheveled mess. So God is purposing through these means to bring a famine. The famine will put Egypt in a place where everyone from around will have to come to Egypt for help. Sure sounds familiar to a dream that Joseph had. And then when that happens, he's going to keep them there for a purpose. It doesn't make sense to the Israelites. They become eventually slaves. At first, everyone appreciated them because they were Joseph's relatives. But then, eventually, there was a pharaoh who did not remember Joseph, just like the cupbearer didn't. And the Israelites are stuck there, and it looks so bad. They're in slavery. This is terrible. Yet, had they been left back in Canaan in the state they were, they would have kept separating, kept marrying outside of the faith. They would have lost all identity. But God, in his providential wisdom, with his purposes in mind to keep his ultimate promises, brings them to Egypt this way through these means, grows them into two million people, and eventually raises up another person to lead them out with their identity intact and with an obvious picture to the world that God kept his covenant promises despite his people's unfaithfulness. This is all part of the purpose of God, and it comes down to the moments these people are living in right now with the next seven years of plenty and seven years of famine after that. That's all they can see. That's what Pharaoh knows. And he, by God's design, sees the credibility of Joseph. Verse 38. Pharaoh says to his servants, I'm assuming an earshot of Joseph, it doesn't say, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. His purpose on full display, and the Egyptians are beneficiaries of God's favor to Joseph. Also, I want you to see through Joseph, the wisdom of God on full display. This is not something he could have conjured. It's something that God worked in him. We know that Joseph was an operational wizard. Um, His wisdom, though, comes from God. He exhibits skills with managerial and operations and administration. He's he's good at it at every level. He was that in his father's house even as a teenager. He was that immediately in Potiphar's house. He was even that in the prison. 
But these natural gifts he has are still gifts from God. And God works his wisdom outwardly through the gifts he gives Joseph. That's true of everyone in your life. God's given you some talents and abilities that people notice about you. They're from God. These are things God allows you to do. He works through you in this way. Here now the director of operations, the prime minister, this is where Joseph ascends to. You know, what he says in verse 33 to 36, I truly do not believe is first and foremost him angling for a job, even though it seems that way. Look at the passage and see if you agree. Now, therefore, verse 33, the wisdom of God going to work through Joseph. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Now, I know it sounds like angling, but if we had not studied Joseph earlier, I might agree. But Joseph shows a certain naivete, and it's connected to his absolute belief in what God reveals. You remember when he's 17 and had the dreams. I think he goes to his brothers to tell them what the dreams are, not because uh, he's trying to lord it over them, but he has a vivid dream he knows is true, and he wants his brothers to know. He's just going to say what the truth is let the chips fall, and they didn't fall well for him. But now we come to this place, and he again has a vivid revelation from God. And he, by his natural gifts that God has given him, recognizes, okay, as I'm telling you this, what I'm telling you is very serious. It's going to mean death and misery for thousands. In fact, Egypt would stand on the precipice of extinction if they don't listen to what he's saying. So while he's saying it, and while they're listening, he's saying at the same time, you're going to have to appoint one person. Pharaoh, you can't be it, but it'll be under your authority. You're going to find somebody who's going to oversee this whole project, and then they're going to have point people, governors in various places, to collect the proper taxes that will keep them, keep us, keep much of the world, didn't know that then, but it ends up being that, much of the world fed and free from extermination. You have to love the way knowing that God is sovereign and has planned something spurs Joseph on to action. Ken Hughes once again says, the knowledge of God's purpose is not the end of human planning and action, but it's the beginning of it. The fact that God had set up the future, that's a summons for the people of God to act. Uh, Knowing that God is sovereign doesn't mean we sit back, it means we jump in because we're confident whatever it may be. If God told you you only had so much time to live and this would be the day, the right response would be, well, do whatever I can to that point. Um, Whatever he reveals, we should respond to with an action. And when we do this, we find ourselves acting with much more purpose and vigor and carefulness. Uh, This is a, a great example of how knowing the sovereignty of God doesn't paralyze. It actually compels us to really fruitful action. Now, I don't know about this crowd, how many in this crowd are wrestling fans. And I'm not talking like real wrestling. I mean WWF wrestling. I grew up watching. In fact, that was the number one thing I got grounded from if I wasn't doing right is you can't watch wrestling, which devastated me. Well, about 20 years ago, there was one of the great matches in the history of wrestling. It was Hulk Hogan versus The Rock. This is a lame crowd when it comes to WWF. I can't believe. At any rate... The point I'm getting at, which I know you're wondering at this point, I was listening to an interview with those two wrestlers just two years ago, 20 years after the fact, 
and they were discussing how it all went down. It's obviously all predetermined. It's a show. But when they're doing it, you suspend that understanding and just watch it because it's incredible all the things they do. This was the old guard, Hulk Hogan, and the new guard, The Rock, taking over, and they wanted some epic match that showed that, that changing of the guard. So the guy who owns it all calls them six months ahead and tells them this is who's going to win, this is how it's going to happen. They didn't go to sleep and forget about it. They were pumped for six months preparing and orchestrating this great show they were going to show. Knowing the future and what would happen only actually invigorated them. In the interview, they were talking about how in all their career, that was what they loved. That buildup was the greatest because it was such a big thing that they had, had planned. They didn't choose it. The guy said, this is what you're going to do. But they wanted to perform it so well. They wanted to go out and as it would happen, that everybody would be engaged in the process of passing the torch would happen, and there was an electric in the crowd you've never seen before in any match. Even those who are deadpan about wrestling, you would have loved to watch that match too. It was all predetermined. How could they be so excited about it? They knew the outcome, and they knew their part to play in it, and could not wait to get to be part of it. We know so much of what God tells us will come to pass. We don't know the specifics, so we're excited to get engaged and follow God and obey God and do whatever it is. This is his world and his ultimate realities, and he makes you part of it, and he helps us to have the courage to do the things he calls us to do. And in Joseph's case, a lot could have gone wrong with telling Pharaoh what the results of this dream were. But by God's movement, Pharaoh listens, and now Joseph's in a place we start to set back and see God's in control of all of this. But that doesn't mean I sit and do nothing. In fact, the opposite is true. I get engaged with full confidence that God is behind this. And if I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, then he'll correct us there too. Finally, I want you to notice the mercy of God on display and what happens here. Egypt is not God's covenant people. They were a nation that worshiped false gods. They did not honor the true and living God. Yet God shows great mercy to them and many in the world at this time. Joseph, in God's favor towards him, becomes a blessing to even unbelieving rebellious nations. When Joseph describes what should be done, it's God who gives Pharaoh receptivity to do what he says, which is the smart thing. That's the mercy. The mercy is God softened Pharaoh to do the right thing here. The proposal, verse 37, please Pharaoh and all his servants. Everybody's like, yeah, this is the guy. Pharaoh says, Pharaoh, the pagan who believes in a bunch of other gods, who thinks gods are to be leveraged and manipulated, says, wait a minute, who other than this guy can we find who the spirit of, the, uh, the spirit of God is? He says to Joseph, since it's true that God has shown you all this, none discerning as wise as you are, you'll be over all my house, everybody will do what you say. Pharaoh gives indirect credit to God for the knowledge he gained through these dreams that Joseph interpreted. His mercy extends even beyond, at least temporally, to the people of Egypt and others. You know, as we have been walking through these different episodes, these different scenes in Joseph's life, we've seen how he pictures, he gives us a clear understanding of what Messiah will do in fullness and in greater capacity. Joseph models Christ yet again in this movement from humiliation to exaltation. Joseph spent time in bondage and imprisonment and humiliation, counted with the lowest of the low, 
and all of it was a preparation for the exaltation that he would bring him to that we see here in this episode. Christ, humiliated, humbled, ultimately to secure our salvation, and he's ultimately exalted. Joseph, he received a revelation from God on multiple occasions, and he used that revelation to warn people where appropriate, where needed, where necessary. Christ came to proclaim his Father's plans and how people could escape that just wrath in him. Joseph was a wonderful counselor to Pharaoh. He had words of life. Christ is the ultimate wonderful counselor. We should pay heed to all he has said. Joseph spoke, although a young person, without position of authority. He spoke as one having authority. This is exactly what the early listeners of Christ said. He speaks as though he's one having authority, and he's not even 50 years old yet. Joseph was but 30 years old when he began his public role. Jesus was but 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Joseph was seated as Pharaoh's right hand, co-equal with the king of Egypt. Christ, seated now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, co-equal with the Father. It was Joseph who at that time, not Pharaoh, Joseph, who the whole world had to go to for salvation. If you were going to live, you would have to listen to what Joseph said. You'd have to go to him. People would have to come to him for food. It was early in Christ's earthly ministry, his public ministry, when he had people following him more and more, and they were hungry. They were hungry for spiritual things. That's what they really needed. But they find themselves in a situation far from where they could get any food. It says in John 6, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, and he noticed there's just too many people here. Where are they going to get food? Verse 9, his disciples say, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many, the disciples say? Jesus says, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in numbers. So you know, double that in real numbers. Jesus then took the loaves that he had, and he had given thanks, and then he distrib- distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. He's really the greater of all the other prophets, even the greater Joseph, by what he does miraculously there. In just a little while later, Jesus gives this interpretation to what he does. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we know that you are sovereign, yet you are not indifferent in any way towards your children. We know that you are intimately involved in the details of our lives. Oh Lord, help us to rest in your sovereignty and to find great comfort in knowing your good hand of providence is working. May this spur us on to action. Lord, when we find ourselves in a terrible trial one day, we know that the next day could be some great blessing. Whatever the circumstances, deepen our trust and our faith in you. Stabilize us by our knowledge of your control and care 
and your loving hand. Please, O Lord, do this in us and through us so that we might be lights to a dark world. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's together respond by turning in our hymnal to 300.